Abram is returning from Egypt back to Canaan. The commentator Victor Hamilton asks, what does one talk about? How do spouses communicate after recent events like these? You will recall that in Genesis 12, Abram had sinned greatly against Sarai by acting more like a pimp than a husband. By putting her into a situation where she became another man's wife and liable to the sexual intimacy belonging to that marriage. And he did so for his own advantage, not for hers. He was exploiting her in order to benefit himself. And so I say he was acting more like a pimp than a husband in Genesis chapter 12. What a heinous sin against his wife and against the very institution of marriage itself. What sin against God. However, in chapter 13, there is a marked change in Abram's behavior. What we see in this chapter is that Abram repented. Abram repented of his sin. He takes a journey back to the altar that he had previously built between Bethel and Ai. And this journey back to the altar hints to us that he's returning to the communion with God that he had previously enjoyed, but which had been interrupted by his sin in Egypt. This is just a hypothesis, admittedly, because the text doesn't tell us explicitly that he was going back there in order to repent. But... This hypothesis is confirmed when we see how Abram acts after returning to the altar. It's clear that there was a heart level returning to God that occurred because we know what is happening in a man's heart by the way that a man acts. And so after returning to the altar, we see Abram acting differently. And so we know that change transpired in his heart. And so, essentially what you see is Abram making a journey back to the altar. And this was a real physical journey. This is not a a metaphor or figurative language. But what we see is that in making that journey, there's a parallel between making that journey back to the altar and making a journey of the heart back to the communion with God that he had previously enjoyed. His dealings with Lot in this chapter... Genesis 13, show us that he was no longer consumed by a desire for self-preservation. Of course, nobody likes difficulty and suffering, and nobody likes drawing the short straw. Uh, Nobody likes getting less than the best. But what we see in this passage is that he's not consumed by that desire to come out on top, the way that he was when he went down into Egypt. He allows Lot to take the first choice of the land. What we see here is uh, is exemplary. Abram is peacemaking, and Abram is exhibiting selfless love for his neighbor, both of which are good, admirable qualities. So we see here in this, this section, Abram again as a good example. What we see with all the biblical characters but Christ is that they alternate between being good examples in some circumstances and bad examples in others. And this is because fundamentally the Bible is not full of uh, people 
who are different than everybody else and that we should somehow transcend our normalcy to attain to be like Abram or to be like King David or to be like whoever. But fundamentally, the Bible is full of people that are actually exactly like us. Sinners. And they receive a salvation that is actually exactly like the salvation that we receive. We are pardoned by grace through faith and we also like them sometimes do the right thing and sometimes do the wrong thing but God perseveres in love towards us for Christ's sake so this is kind of what's going on here in this section Abram repents and gives us actually a good example here in Genesis chapter 13 of the way that we ought to live So learning from Abram's example here, what we see is that his repentance was grounded in faith in God's promise. Without faith in the promise, why would Abram own Yahweh as his God in the first place? We remember back in Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning that God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then again in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, God says to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. Without believing those promises, why would Abram bother to return to Yahweh? As Hebrews says, Abram believed that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That this is fundamentally Abram must have had faith in God's promise in order to repent in the first place, that it would be worth his while to repent. And then, secondly, without faith in the promise, how could God, pardon me, how could Abram let the choice part of the land go to Lot? Unless Abram believed that indeed God would give his descendants the land, why would he bother to give Lot first pick? of the land. If Yahweh was not to provide for Abram in general, as he had promised to do in Genesis 12, why would Abram trust and follow him? And if Yahweh was not going to ensure that Abram's descendants would receive the land, as Yahweh also promised in Genesis 12, why wouldn't Abram do everything he could to hang on to every inch of the land that he could? Abram must have believed these promises in order to act the way he does in Genesis 13. First, by returning to Bethel, by coming back to Yahweh in repentance. And then secondly, dealing so magnanimously with Lot. However, Abram knew more than simply the aforementioned truths, that God would take care of him in general, and that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. Abram also knew that he himself would inherit a better country and a city whose designer and builder is God. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Where do we read in Genesis this promise to Abram? Where do we read in Genesis that God would give him a better country than Canaan? Where do we read in Genesis that God would give give to Abram a city whose designer and builder is God? Abram may have understood God's promise of Canaan then as we are able to from our vantage point in history as typological of the inheritance that is to belong to those of faith. Namely, Canaan and so much more, even the whole earth. The Gospel is about individual salvation, that we would be pardoned for our sins and that we would be reconciled to God, but we're not to be pardoned for our sins and reconciled to God in some ethereal way or some abstract way or simply that we would be disembodied spirits who are reconciled to God. But the Gospel also has broader implications than simply individual salvation. As we've talked about a few times already, the Gospel includes the good news that we will have a place to live in resurrected bodies, a new heavens and a new earth. Christ will break the curse that is upon this present earth by doing what Adam should have done, by undoing Uh, what Adam has wrought here in this world. That Christ, as we sang around Christmas, indeed has come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found, which includes even the earth. We read in the Scripture things like, the meek shall inherit the earth. We read things in the Scripture like, the righteous shall never be moved. We read Job saying things like, I know that in the flesh I will see God. We read all of these things that speak to us about bodily resurrection and in fact the restoration and the renewal of all things. And so we can see with the whole canon of Scripture available to us to study, we can see that Canaan was never the ultimate prize for God's people. But it was typological. It was a real thing promised to Abram's physical seed upon certain conditions and so on and so forth that it would be their possession. But we understand from the rest of Scripture that Canaan pointed forward to something even better. And so even as we say a a few moments ago, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. When I tread the verge of Jordan... Bid my anxious fears subside. We use language like this to speak about the Christian life because we're actually going on to something better than Canaan. And not something fundamentally different than Canaan, but Canaan and then some. That Do you realize that Canaan shall be ours? As will Barbados. As will North America. As will Africa. That... The meek shall inherit the earth. That we will live with God forever in a new heavens and in a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus speaks about the eternal state in the Gospel of Matthew and He uses this terminology, in the regeneration. And so as it is with us individually, we are made new by the work of Christ and yet there's continuity 
between who we are now and who we were before we came to Christ. So there will be newness. The new heavens and the new earth will be really new. But there will also be continuity. And so perhaps Abram was able to perceive these things uh, or perhaps these things were revealed to Abraham uh, directly and not recorded for us in Scripture. We need to acknowledge the fact that there is revelation given to people in Scripture which is not recorded for us in Scripture. People knew things as we read the biblical narrative we see that people know things that they could not have known unless it had been revealed to them. And so we understand that every word of Scripture, every jot and tittle, as the King James Version says, is inspired by God and is inerrant and infallible. But what we also need to understand is that not every inerrant and infallible word of God is recorded for us in the Scripture. And so... Uh, it's possible that God had revealed this to Abraham uh, elsewhere uh, or that he had given him some insight into understanding that Canaan was typological of something better. But whatever way he came to know this, we can be certain that Abram had that level of clarity to understand that Canaan was not what was ultimately promised to him that there was something better than Canaan. We know that from Hebrews chapter 11. The inspired writer of Scripture tells us explicitly that Abram knew that he himself would inherit a better country and that he was looking for a city whose designer and builder is God, a city that has foundations, implicitly contrasted with other cities that do not have foundations. In other words, will not last. And so we know that Abram knew, however he knew, that he himself would inherit a better country and a city whose designer and builder is God. And these glorious gospel promises gave Abram a different perspective on life. And so they may do for us. Abram knew that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and make all things right. Abram knew that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And so he continually built those altars and offered those sacrifices, trusting that God would be propitious toward him because of the blood of a substitute. We know that uh, he had faith that when God's Messiah, God's promised one, came that he would somehow grant to Abram a better country and a better city. And that gave Abram a different perspective on life. And so that same gospel that Abram believed in seed form, which we believe in full flower form, can also give us a different perspective on life. Abram in this passage, after returning by faith in the promises to worship God and to to be restored to communion with Him. He's refocusing his mind. He's reorienting his priorities in light of these gospel promises. And it gives him a different perspective on life, which leads him to react differently in Genesis 13 
than he did in Genesis 12. He's no longer self-protective the way that he was in Genesis chapter 12. Again, in Genesis chapter 12, he put Sarai, his wife, in harm's way in order to protect himself. In chapter 13, Abram is willing to make himself vulnerable to be a peacemaker and to serve Lot. What if this conversation with Lot goes badly? What if, uh, what if, what if all of these fearful things that could keep him from acting as a peacemaker are secondary considerations for Abram because he's trusting that God cares for him, that God is providing for him. He's secure, he has this security that comes from faith in the gospel, which leads him to be able to go and seek to broker peace with Lot. Initiating the conversation and having the conversation in an appropriate way could have been difficult for Abram, just as initiating and having a conversation in an appropriate way can be difficult for us. For some people, the difficult part is initiating the conversation, engaging in it at all. For others, it's easy to initiate the conversation, but it's hard to have it in an appropriate way. The gospel frees us to be able to do both of these things, right? Because we can feel free to initiate the conversation instead of being fearful about how it might go because we know that we are loved, that there's someone who cares for us, there's someone who's going to provide for our ultimate security, a better country and a better city. And so we don't have to worry so much about how things go in this country and in our present city. And so we can initiate the conversation. Again, we don't have to have the conversation in an inappropriate way, trying to strong arm and manage the outcome. Because we, again, we realize that it's not all up to us to make sure that things turn out well for ourselves. We can allow ourselves to be vulnerable. We can allow ourselves to lose in a conflict if it should be God's will. Because we understand that God will ultimately take care of us. And so if we can't bring an outcome, a desirable outcome to a conflict in a godly way, then we're willing for it not to go in a desirable direction. If only we may glorify God. And we trust that He will provide for us a better country and a better city, even if this particular conflict doesn't go our way. And so, Abram's confidence in the gospel enabled him to go and seek to make peace with Lot. And uh, so, it can do for us that we can seek to be peacemakers in our relationship with others. This, This perspective of God providing for us surely and certainly a better country and a better city can also enable us as it did to Abraham to go and be peacemakers. Also, we see that Abram was willing to be generous, uh, to be servant-hearted, to be lowly before Lot. And again, this would be motivated by this assurance that there's a better country and a better city coming his way. What does, it, what does it matter, so to speak, if Lot takes the choice portion of the land when he has a better city and a better country coming down the pipeline? How would it affect our thinking about material goods, about disputes, about 
a promotion at work or this or that or the other thing, whatever sort of comparable situation we might think about. What does it matter if somebody else benefits in a particular way and we don't? Is that the end of the world? No, of course not. We've got a better country stored up for us, a better city prepared for us. And so we can, we can be generous with others. We can, we can gladly allow situations to turn out more favorably for others than they turn out for us as Christians because of our hope in the gospel. And so when we find ourselves in disputes about money, about uh, positions of power or influence at work or extra responsibility or whatever the case may be, we don't have to cling to these things so tightly. But we can, we can allow somebody else to take the higher place, to have the better seat, to choose the better portion of land, to get the promotion, etc., etc. Because again, we have this confidence that what Yahweh has said He will do, He will in fact do. He has prepared for us a better country. He has prepared for us a better city. And so we are just passing through this present world. And we don't have to then frantically try to get all that we can here and now as if this is our inheritance. Those are the specific ways that we see Abram affected by his confidence in the gospel in this section of scripture. And those are specific ways that we can be affected by the gospel also. But there's a multitude of ways that we really could be. And we, of course, don't have time to stay here and flesh out exhaustively all of those ways tonight. But what would it change in your life if you really believed, grabbed firmly a hold of this truth that God has prepared for you a better country? God has prepared for you a better city. How would that change your attitude as you go about your daily life here? In what ways would that shape your priorities? I want to do want to mention one more specific way as we try to think about this and flesh this out. What could this look like in our lives? I do want to mention one more specific way because I think that this is a way that many of us are tempted. not to act like we have a better country and a better city in store. And that is to seek our own prosperity in the here and now in the way that Jesus prohibits in Matthew chapter 5. And as I said in that portion of the service, that's not an absolute prohibition of gaining wealth. But the contrast is between ultimately seeking to store up treasures on earth or ultimately seeking to store up treasures in heaven. So if you're offered a promotion at work with higher pay, you don't have to say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm seeking heavenly treasure. You can take it. That's fine. But the issue comes down to where are our affections? Where, where is our heart as we think about improving our situation, as we think about what's good for us? as we think about what's beneficial for us, do we think that it's ultimately good and ultimately beneficial for us to seek treasure 
here and now on this earth? I think it's very easy for us to answer yes and to, to move in that direction and to prioritize that way. I think it's very easy for those things to become ultimate for us. And again, as we talked about earlier in the service, that's not a sin that affects only the super rich. It's not so much the outcome as the, the process and the attitude that Christ has in mind in Matthew chapter 5. You might not have two coins to rub together, but you could still sin against that particular command by seeking, ultimately, to find two coins that you can rub together. And so, I want us to just think, what would it look like for us to really believe that we have a heavenly country, a better country and a better city in store for us and to think through that imperative not to store up treasures on earth but treasures in heaven well even as Lot does here in, or pardon me as Abram does here in this section he prioritizes godliness over material gain it's so clear in this section. If, if, you have to, if you had to compare, I don't think there's anything particularly sinful per se, though some commentators would disagree with me. I don't think there's anything particularly sinful about Lot's choice here. Abram offers him a choice and he makes a choice and he goes and takes some land. I think it's reasonable. But Abram's attitude is so exemplary here. Abram is the older man. And God had actually explicitly promised Abram this land. So how reasonable, in that culture where age was revered, how eminently reasonable would it have been for Abram to approach Lot and say, we should separate. I'm going to go in this direction, so you go in that direction. But Abram comes with such graciousness, such humility, and says to Lot, there's there's a potential problem between us. Let's avoid it. And let's avoid it like this. You improve your situation as you see fit, and I'll work around it. What a godly attitude. And believing that we have a better country and a better city in store would free us up to be able to do that kind of thing. Imagine that there was a dispute about an inheritance with siblings. How to divide up the parents' inheritance or this or that and tempers are flaring and things are getting heated. A Christian can come into that situation understanding that we have a better country and a better city. And a Christian can say, listen, let me take the smaller portion so that both of you would be satisfied. And let's work this out in that way. Where, where, Where godliness and material gain or the opportunity to glorify God and material gain are set against each other understanding that we have a better country and a better city stored up for us can free us to choose godliness and can free us to choose glorifying God rather than seeking material advantage here and now We are warned against 
ultimately seeking our prosperity in the here and now. We're not to lift up our eyes as Lot did and see the country presently around us as the best country. We might lift up our eyes as Lot did and say, over there looks nice, but we have to always have in our minds and our hearts, but there's a better country. So that's nice, but there is a better country. That city is nice, but there is a better city. That always needs to weigh on our hearts and on our minds. Another way that we can seek first the kingdom of God rather than storing up treasures for ourselves on earth motivated by these promises is this to seek what is best for our souls rather than what is going to be of material gain to us as we would think about might think about our educational choices or the educational choices of our children as we might think about career choices or career choices of our children as we might think about our own marriage choices or marriage choices for our children things like earning potential reputation social class material security all of these things should come in second at best to what is good for our souls or what is good for the souls of our children And the only way that we can do that is if there is a better country and if there is a better city. Because if it is all about the here and now, then why wouldn't we, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why wouldn't we try to put our kids in the best schools so that they can get the best jobs and have the highest earning potentials? Why wouldn't we try to help our children marry up, so to speak? Why wouldn't we do all these things if there is no better country and if there is no better city and here and now is all that there is. But understanding that there is a better country and that there is a better city helps us to seek first the kingdom of God rather than prioritizing all of these other things. Another example or illustration of this point is in North America, many people, many Christians move somewhere for a career and then find a church. But it really should be the opposite. What we really should be doing is looking to find a church first and then figuring out a career that would fit. We don't have the same problem here on a small island. The, the farthest you can move would be up into St. Lucie. But really, if you were motivated, you could still get here. Right? So we don't have the exact same situation. But I mention, I mention it because it's illustrative of the principle that I'm trying to outline here which is what do we seek first do we announce oh we got a job in this other city and now we're looking for a church we're moving in July and so we're looking for a church that we can attend when we move that's not seeking first the kingdom of heaven that's acting like this is the best city that this is the best country and that our highest priority needs to be career Conversely, if we're offered a job in another city and we're inclined to take it, what we should do first is look and say, is this going to be good for our souls? Is this going to be a good move 
for my soul and for the souls of my family members. If not, we don't take it. Because we're not trying to get the best inheritance here and now. We're not trying to take the choicest portion of Canaan here and now as Lot does in this text. But we're, we're understanding, as Abram did in this text, that there is a better country and that there is a better city and that we can let greener pastures go in this life. Understanding that, that we will not fail to receive that better country and that better city that the Lord has stored up for us. And so I don't mention that illustration about what some North Americans do because it's directly relevant to us, but simply because it's illustrative of the principle in terms of what comes first. Many people, their first thing is career, and then they fit in church around it. Right? Or their first thing is extracurricular activities. And then they fit in church around it. And so on and so forth. Right? Their f- the first thing to drop in their schedule is worship. This is, the, this is the wrong attitude. That's acting like the best country is here and now. The best city is here and now. Understanding that the best country and the best city are certainly and surely stored up for us helps us prioritize worship here and now even if it means foregoing a particular career foregoing a particular extracurricular activity so on and so forth really having our sights set on that better city and that better country God has prepared for us who are trusting in Christ a better country and a heavenly city. We should live with this reality foremost in our minds and not prioritize the here and now in such a way that causes us to sin against God by breaking His commandments. In view of this, these gospel promises of a better country and a better city, neither should we prioritize the here and now in such a way that causes us to fail to prioritize His kingdom. In view of the gospel, we should hold loosely to the things in the here and now seeking first the good of our souls and the souls of those around us whatever it may cost us from a worldly perspective if indeed there is a better country and a better city and there is then that's the best long term plan